We're looking at environmental ethics. It is one of the top 10 topics I've chosen for the final oral exam. Um, because it is important, relevant. Um, if I'd asked you before you started this course, if I'd asked you before you started reading the catechism, where in the catechism will you find what the church teaches on the environment? You might have really struggled to think where was it going to be? If I'd even then told you it's going to be in the moral theology section because it's about how to live with respect to the environment, you might still have thought, but where would it be? And as you should have discovered now by your reading, it's in the th context of the commandment on theft um, that the church in the catechism teaches of the environment. And this is the traditional way to think of it in terms of property. And I would point out this is actually a very good practical way to think about the environment in terms of justice, injustice, the concept that you can somehow steal it. So that is the catechism context is what I've written up there, yeah. So here we have a little person, picture of a person with my wonderful artwork. Here we have an image of the world or the cosmos. Actually, that isn't quite right. We need him there. The point being, he is there in the center. So there's a word we call anthropocentric. And anthropocentrism. So anthropos, the word, Greek word for the human being, centric, meaning everything centered on the human person. So the notion that um, what is the environment about, what is the entire cosmos about, is about the human person. Why was it created? It was created, as you will have hopefully read by now, um, for man, is what the Catechism says. Now there's two ways of understanding that, and that's one of the key takeaways I want you to get from this class today. Um, there is an tyrannical way, to use the language of Pope Francis, and there is an authentic way of understanding um, anthropocentric. So it's tyrannical if you think that the human person being the center of everything means you have a right to waste the environment, to discard it, to destroy it, 
to exploit it. If that's the way you're approaching the environment, then your vision of anthropocentric is the terminology of John Paul II, uh, not, uh, Pope Francis, tyrannical. You are a tyrant over the environment. Whereas there is an authentic way of seeing the human person as the center of it all, the meaning of it all, where we use the language of a steward of creation, of enjoying creation, of cultivating creation, bringing it to its completion, to fruition, to blossom. Um, and thus with that to, to protect it. So there's a contrast I'm going to try and articulate this notion anthropocentrism, a tyrannical way of meaning that or an authentic way of meaning that. How many of you have seen the movie The Matrix? Yeah, pretty much everyone. There's a wonderful line in that, that uh, where, do you all remember Agent Smith? He's the bad guy who appears again and again and again. He says, human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. Human beings are a disease a cancer of this planet. Said by Agent Smith. And many of the eco-warriors, the environmental campaigners, that is how they talk about human beings. Humans are just inherently a problem. The less humans, the better. Uh, all kinds of population control programs are built on this pre premise. Human beings are a disease. The planet would be better without us. Now that's the very opposite of saying, why is the planet here? It's here for us. It was made for us. Yes, but we've all heard this Agent Smith attitude. So what is it in our Christian or Catholic understanding that is putting a completely different starting point? I'm going to make a contrast with this. Um, instead of anthropocentrism, there are some that talk about biocentrism, where life is, is the central concern, or ecocentrism, slightly different focus, where somehow the ecology is the focus of what should be your ethical concern, or life is the center, bio. Is this my handwriting that's the issue? What? What? Not referring to anthropocentrism. Yeah, so this is the contrast. So um, anthropocentrism, I'm saying there's a Catholic way of understanding that. 
We therefore don't embrace biocentrism or ecocentrism. Yeah, okay. Sister Canis used to beat me because of my handwriting and my spelling. And she didn't beat me enough, clearly. So. Whereas Pope Francis, various documents of the church, will talk about instead a human ecology or an integral ecology. So what's the ecology we're concerned with? Not just plants and animals and stuff, but actually the human ecology is the ecology that gives meaning to everything else. And when we're valuing it, when we're measuring it, when we're asking questions, what's justice in this regard? The human ecology uh, is a term recent popes have used to say that's the ecology we're concerned with. So those are the broad issues we're going to be looking at today. Okay, let's turn to the lecture notes, starting on page one. So on page one there, one and two, I'm trying to introduce two words, concepts, dominion and stewardship. Um, so first, dominion. Uh, this is a term, a concept, uh, what is humanity's relationship with the environment, one of dominion. Starting with Genesis. When God made man, he said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, what does that word dominion mean? I say it, its meaning lies in the previous part of that verse. Let us make man in our own image. In our image, meaning with a spiritual soul that transcends the value of material creation, with a spiritual soul capable of rationally governing material creation. So your spiritual soul in the image of God is what makes you different to all this other stuff. That's what means it's appropriate for you, possible for you to have dominion over all that other stuff. The cows are not capable of uniting and planning a dominion of the world. It's just not something they're capable of. You are capable of it um, because you're in God's image. But the second point there, subservient to God's governance. If you're in his image, then the way you have dominion has to be relative to him. Which brings us on to the Second point, stewardship. You know what a steward is? A steward acts on behalf of another person. The steward of the household is in charge of the household, but doesn't own the household. They run it for somebody else. So in the Gospels, we've repeated parables about stewards running a household 
for the owner who's far away. So stewardship actually is um, a more complete meaning of what we mean by dominion. So then quote Genesis 2.15, to till the earth and keep it. This was the command God gave to Abraham, uh, Adam. What was Adam to do? He was to till the earth and keep it. Uh, Joshua, can you read that quote from Benedict for us? Human beings legitimately exercise a responsible stewardship over nature in order to protect it, to enjoy its fruits, and to cultivate it so that it can worthily accommodate and feed the world's population. Okay, what happens to a garden if you don't cultivate it? It dies, it goes wild, it just, it doesn't flourish. A gardener cultivating the garden can bring it to a completion that by itself it's not capable of. That is your function as a human being with respect to the environment. If you cultivate it, you will protect it, you will be able to enjoy its fruits. Whereas a bad gardener who just destroys the property because he's ripping it up and kind of too focused on immediate gratification will not only fail to produce fruits in the long term, but he'll destroy the thing he's been entrusted with. So this image of the gardener, Adam, the gardener commanded to till the earth and keep it, is a very simple but comprehensive image of what humans' relationship with the environment is supposed to be. Comments with me so far? Yep. It's like the human good as the end of creation, which also happens to be for creation's own good as well. Yes. But creation doesn't exist for itself, it has an ordering to something else, namely us. Whereas we don't exist with an ordering to creation, we exist with an ordering outside of the material creation to God. Okay, let's skip over the page. Pages two and three, I'm trying to articulate this word anthrop anthropocentric. <clears throat> um, so, first of all, a false anthropocentrism. Um, Page two there. What literally anthropocentric means man-centered. Um, and if you use this concept in a false way, I say it's the notion that the earth is here for us to use and we can use it in any way that suits us. Say so a false anthropocentrism sees the world as a thing we can destroy because we own it. But I say, our stewardship is relative to God, not absolute, and our ownership is relative to other generations, past and future. It's not absolute. Um, so Pope Francis, in his encyclical on the environment, Laudato Si, says, the Bible has no place for a tyrannical anthropocentrism unconcerned for other creatures. 
and he specifies a few things I list there. What's characteristic of a false anthropocentrism? It fails to recognize the value of created things. It reduces all value to questions of materialistic convenience. You know, are those plants immediately there, convenient to me? If not, I'm ripping them out. Um, it says it leads to misguided lifestyles, fails to recognize man's true place in the world, namely relative to God, and values technology over reality, seeing nature as a mere thing to be exploited. And if you read Pope Francis, this is a concept in his thinking in lots of ways of valuing ideology over reality. And to understand that, you need to apparently know the way the Enlightenment plan, uh, played out in Argentina, where a kind of Kantian idealism versus reality was a kind of dominant philosophical thing. So Francis will often talk about ideology and ideas as problematic from his Argentinian background in a way that I think in the American background we can hear those words and not quite understand what he's saying. So bottom of that section I say, anthropocentrism is routinely denounced by secular or liberal Christian scholars. For example, I quote John Hart, who accuses the Catechism, our textbook, of a strong anthropocentrism, unintentionally bordering on idolatry that was expressed in the phrase, God created everything for man. Idolatry, um, I'm not sure if that's rhetorical flourish on his part, quite what he's meaning. I guess he's meaning worshipping man um, rather than worshipping God by putting man at the center of everything. So that's the complaint. That if you're putting man at the center of everything, thinking you can do what you like with the environment, that's not an authentic meaning of what the catechism says when it says everything was made for man. So what would be an authentic way of articulating that? Page three. So here I'm trying to briefly sum up an authentic anthropocentrism. So I say at the top, the doctrine that, quoting the Catechism, God created everything for man. And then I have some quotes there from different <coughs> church documents. Um, so if this, to some, would seem a very um, conservative position, I've got three quotes there from the Vatican Council saying this very point. You could read the first, Brother Adam. All things on earth should be related to man as their center and crown. Adam. Man is the only creature on earth that God has wielded for its own sake. Francisco. Man created in God's image receive a mandate to subject to himself the earth and all it contains. And John Paul. God created the world for man, setting human beings at the pinnacle of the entire cosmos. What is it all here for? What's the pinnacle? What's the goal of it? Humanity. God has this vision from before making everything. He wanted these things, these human beings that would be in his image with a body and a soul. The angels only have a spiritual nature. 
in order to have these humans with a body and a soul, he needed to make everything else. That is the vision that explains what it means to say everything is created for man. Man is the center of everything. So there's lots of scientific studies, what they call um, the anthropic principle, lots of uh, analysis of scientific laws, what they call, you know, the cos constants in science, various equations, that there's a kind of random number in the relationship between two things. What is it? It's a constant. And there are lots of constants that are, it would seem, randomly chosen, that they are a specific value, but they could have been kind of some different value, logically speaking. And there's this notion that the cosmos has somehow been fine-tuned, all the laws, to be just so that everything would explode, condense, evolve, so that it would be possible for human beings. If gravity was a slightly different value, if the speed of light was slightly different, all, all these random constants, if they were slightly different, we couldn't exist. Somebody's made all these laws of physics for us to be possible. Because before God made anything, he had humanity in mind. Okay, then quoting the Catechism. So the material creation was created for man. Michael, can you read the universe created? The universe created in and by the eternal word the image of the invisible God is destined for and addressed to man, himself created in the image of God and called for a personal relationship with God. And God saw that it was good, very good. For God willed creation as a gift addressed to man, an inheritance destined for and entrusted to him. Hence it is legitimate to use animals for food and clothing. They may be used to serve the just satisfaction of man's needs. So in the account in Genesis, God makes this and he says, and it was good. He makes that and he says, and it was good. When he makes man, very good. The pinnacle of creation. We are part of creation, but transcending it in value, the peak, the pinnacle of it. Now in, we won't read through it, but I footnote, footnote six, um, Pope Benedict articulates, so I say, authentic anthropocentrism is oriented via Christ. The cosmos is ordered to man, that through man it might be oriented to Christ. So in this vision, what's sometimes called the Scotus vision, even before creation was made at all, God had a plan that he would take human flesh and enter and complete his creation. Um, so the Thomistic argument says, well, God became flesh as a remedy for sin. Scotus says he would have become flesh anyway to complete creation. And that's briefly put what Benedict, Pope Benedict is articulating in that quote there. The cosmos is oriented to Christ, the word through whom everything was made, through humanity, that is in his image and was part of his destined plan to, for him to take flesh of it.
number six is alluded to where he's saying that the whole world was created in view of the Messiah. Yeah. So he's quoting a Jewish tradition saying that. Now, bottom paragraph there, I'm saying ecocentrism and biocentrism. So the counter approach to what we're articulating here of the human being being the center of everything is to say, well, what is the center of everything? It's life. That would be biocentrism. What is the thing that is to be valued? Life itself. Or ecocentrism, where the ecology, the interrelationship of everything, that's what gets valued. So I say these value creation per se as the value, as the center of the ethical value system. These deny any anthropocentric basis for valuing creation because we value man. So the Catholic understanding, we value the human person, therefore we value the environment that he depends on. Whereas the radical eco-warrior approach flips that all around. You value the, the environment as the end in itself. Benedict says, these approaches eliminate the difference of identity and worth between the human person and other living things. Um, and that gets linked with a false anthropology, so a false understanding of what a human person is, seeing it as just part of the material stuff. And Pope Francis quotes in Pope Benedict's saying, there can be no ecology without an adequate anthropology. When the human person is considered as simply one being among others, the product of chance or physical determinism, then our overall sense of responsibility wanes. The cows do not have a sense of responsibility for the cosmos. They are not capable of it. If you don't understand what you are as a human being, you're not going to be able to understand why you have a responsibility for the world around you. So a good hunter, when he goes out hunting, knows that he can't overhunt the stock out there because then there'll be nothing more to hunt. That there is a duty to, in your hunting, hunt appropriately. Um, that would be one specific image of how our engagement with the environment has to be aware of our responsibility in using it, while also being very happy to enjoy it in, and use it in that sense. Yeah. I guess I have difficulty with the statement, valuing creation because we value man. Like, it would seem to me that something like a sunrise is inherently good or beautiful, like, even if man didn't exist? That's a good uh, question point. The church's terminology in this has somewhat been fluid. So before Francis, I would have used the word intrinsic and relative value and said, so we talk about the intrinsic value of human life. Um, 
and there was a period where church documents wouldn't have used the word intrinsic value about material things. Uh, that that's a relative value, but a relative value is a real value. In Laudato Si, Pope Francis uses the word intrinsic value of the material creation. Um, a bit as you're implying a sunrise has beauty and value just in itself. But the sunrise was made for us. The, that it wouldn't be complete without us, even if it maybe is nice. Yeah, uh, yeah, and is truly nice. Um, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, the Psalms say. But they don't proclaim the glory of God the way a rational being in the image of God proclaims the glory of God. So we are the pinnacle of that, the completion of that, in a way that by itself it wasn't able to do. Though any part of creation, because it partakes of the goodness of the Creator, in some sense reflects back to Him as glory, but not the way a rational being is capable of doing. And it seems like the expression you just used of the scriptures implies that there's someone that that proclamation is is oriented to like the humanity to be able to like um, receive it, receive and recognize as a gift, I guess. Yeah, so the actual line I was quoting from the psalm, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, of God. Right, um, so his glory is being communicated to some, because like, he, he shares his glory with us. So yeah, you're, he manifests it to us as a gift, I guess. Mm -hmm. Is it consistent with? Yes, though I don't think that alone would argue the case, but it is true yeah. that he does share his glory with us in a way he doesn't share it with the mice, the carrots, the... Yeah, I'm just trying to talk about, like, if, if humans didn't exist, like, if they just, like, you know, if the green agenda was yeah. fulfilled and all the humanity was, like, eliminated, <laughs> yeah, it would just be like, okay, all this is so great and, and nature can prosper again or whatever, but there's no, like... There's no communication going on, so I was just trying to... Yeah, so you get rid of all the humans, and there are two things that go wrong. One is the way creation is capable of glorying God through the rational, loving being that is a human has gone. So the creation's greatest capacity to glorify the Creator is gone if humanity is gone. But also, back to the image of the gardener, if humanity isn't here taking care of the garden, it's not going to flourish and be able to glorify God even at its physical beauty level. Okay, let's move on, page four. The question, as the Catechism frames it in terms of property, I, I said this briefly already, where does the Catechism treat it? Property. So, the material environment as property. So the catechism treats of the environment in the context of property, i.e. the context of sins against the seventh commandment that prohibits theft. And I say this is the traditional way of viewing our obligations with respect to the environment. So St. Thomas says, he that kills another's ox 
sins. Sins not by killing the ox, but through injuring another man's property. So this is kind of a long established in our Catholic tradition mechanism for the question of justice in this regard. Yeah. Sorry, I, so just from being a hunter, yeah. you lure a deer from someone else's property onto your property and kill it. Yeah. Harvest it. That's, I mean, that's not the same thing, I'm assuming. Because you shouldn't do that, yeah? No, no, no. There's no law that says you can't. But uh, from, this act, from this perspective, it's like saying, well, that deer lived over there on someone else's property but, and you lured it over. But that's the ox is a, man, is a, is a beast of labor to work, like you use it to plow. So a wild deer is a different category, I guess. And that's only in American law. So, um, if you remember Robin Hood, yeah, the, the bad thing about Robin Hood is he was killing the king's deer because the wild deer belonged to the king. So, there is somewhere implicit there a specification in your local law of even the wild animals, who they belong to. If they're on someone else's property, do they somehow belong to him? That's one of those things where local government has to specify what is meant by ownership. Um, but the catechism is framing this as questions of property and ownership. Uh, and I want to indicate this is actually a very useful practical way of doing this, apart from being, I think, accurate. So I, I next say, I'm quoting then Laudato C, the encyclical of Pope Francis, the material environment belongs to everyone. It's our common home. So the Catechism says the goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. So it was given to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Its use is mediated to us via private ownership. But the common ownership of the material ecology remains primordial. So just to repeat that concept, in the church's concept of what ownership means, property means, Everything has been given to all of humanity in the persons of Adam and Eve, our first parents, however we envisage them evolving. Um, how does, if everything belongs to everybody, it kind of doesn't get usable by anybody. You need some responsibility to, for specific things, specific people having specific things they take care of, that's what we call private ownership. And we'll come back to that next lecture when we look at the question of capitalism. But in the concept of the environment, the goods of the world, the goods of the environment are given to all humanity and that use of them gets mediated through private ownership. Okay, A and B here. Theft in this regard. So theft from future generations in terms of the environment. See, the destruction of the environment is a sin of theft against future generations, since it deprives them of the ability to use the material creation responsibly. Um, okay, the second paragraph there is a quote from Pope Benedict. Um, intergenerational, what does intergenerational mean? From one generation to the next. So the generation after you and the generation before you, intragenerational is among your own generation. 
So first the question intergenerational from one generation to the next. Eric, can you read that quote from us? A greater sense. A greater sense of intergenerational solidarity is urgently needed. Future generations cannot be saddled with the cost of our use of common environmental resources. This is a responsibility that present generations have that present generations have towards those of the future. Natural resources resources should be used in such a way that immediate benefits do not have a negative impact on living creatures, human and not present and future, that the protection of private property does not conflict with the universal destination of goods, that human activity does not compromise the fruitfulness of the earth for the benefit of people now and in the future. Okay, the responsibility of present generations towards those who come. So if we pollute this environment, if we uh, create plastics that never biodegrade, that just sit in ever-increasing mounds uh, and ruin the world for the generation coming after of us, that is an injustice to those who will come after us. We should use things in a way that they are capable of being left in a manageable state for the generation to come after you. that logically make sense, does it make sense as a clear duty upon you? So your generation and the eco-warriors among your generation will typically blame my generation for having not done this. Uh, and you'll blame my generation while you use your mobile phone with its non-biodegradable battery um, and your plastic spoons and your whatever else. Um, but so one issue of theft from one generation to the next. Yes. Are you saying that that is hypocritical of, of that generation <coughs> blaming you or the other generation for giving us a state when this is the tool we have because you gave us that? I, I shouldn't have made the phone for you to use in the first place. Is that what you're saying? You get, the gen you get the general gist of where I'm going with this, okay? Um, okay, the next point is about um, ecological resources. So the water out there, you can use that as a, think of that as a thing that is possible to be owned, shared, traded. That therefore implies a notion of justice. Who gets to own it? How much do they get to own? How much do you have a duty to share? Property gives a lens for thinking how it has to get shared out. So Adam, can you read the quote in addition to? In addition to a fair sense of intergenerational solidarity, there's also an urgent moral need for a renewed sense of inter intergenerational solidarity especially in relationships between developing countries and highly industrialized countries, the international community has an urgent duty to find institutional means of regulating the exploitation of non-renewable resources involving poor countries in the process in order to plan together for the future. Another quote from him, if you want to cultivate peace, protect creation. So one of the things um, in this regard is water uh, and it's widely speculated that the next big, big world war is going to be about water. 
to give you an example of this, Israel, a fairly new nation, it's existed for about half a century, they have succeeded in dropping the average temperature in an era of global warming, dropping the average temperature of Israel by two degree, three degrees centigrade. Now what's that in Fahrenheit, about 10 degrees Fahrenheit? They've done that by a vast amount of um, cultivating the land, a huge amount of planting of trees. Where has the water for that come from? There's only one river in Israel, the River Jordan. The Dead Sea, um, the level of it is dropping further and further and further. The Israelis are taking all that water, making their land beautiful and cultivated. The nation of Jordan and the other Arab nations around are so underdeveloped, they're not really able to get into that question of use of it in any effective way. Africa too, huge parts of Africa where um, access to water is going to determine who has the capacity to farm their land, who has the large numbers of African nations that are exporting food to us. That means in some sense they're exporting water because food contains water and they're exporting again and again and again. Um, access to water is one very specific example of a natural resource where there's a question of, of property and ownership, let alone things like mineral rights, oil, um, again, the battery in your phone um, that's uh, not your phone, because <laughs> he's um, the only person here who doesn't have one. Um, you see the basic principle I'm articulating here. And the concept in the catechism structuring of saying property and theft is not only a traditional way of navigating this, but actually quite a practical way of, of navigating and developing public policy in this regard. The risk is that the laws and the policies as too often get written by the pow powerful. Who defines where the water goes, who gets it, those with the power. Weird because like the Mediterranean Sea is like right there. And I don't know if they just like I mean that's like a, it would take a lot of money, but build a dam or some sort of like canal or something. That's salt water though. Oh it is? Oh, yeah. Dang. Yeah. See this is when you live in the middle of the Midwest of America and you don't have this <laughs> <laughs> what is salt water? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So salt water, if you put it on your crops, they'll all die. Oh, yeah. yeah. Processing plants, just like if you try to drink it, it'll kill you. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, very briefly then, page five. Um, so a conclusion from this, point six, there is therefore a need for changed lifestyles. So um, you might say, I hate that Pope Francis, always going on about the environment, that terrible encyclical he gave us, Laudato Si. Well, if you hate him, you've also got to hate that arch-liberal Benedict before him, because he said <laughs> all the same things. Um, so if you, if you look there, um, the second paragraph, uh, let's read the first paragraph. Uh, Jake, could you read that at the top of the page? It is becoming. Our lifestyle and the prevailing 
which are often unsustainable from the social, environmental, and even economic point of view. We can no longer do without a real change of outlook which will result in new lifestyles in which the quest for truth, beauty, goodness, and communion with others for the sake of common growth are the factors which determine consumer choices savings and investments. Okay, that, that's, that's enough to get the, the basic point. So what's at stake here is big if we're destroying the environment for your generation and the generation after you. Our lifestyles, the way we are living is just not sustainable. The polystyrene cups we use in the refectory here, um, one single use, that will never biodegrade or, or the t thousands of years it will take, in effect, never biodegrade. Um, we don't have to use that way. At least now, we've this semester, we've got some reusable coffee cups. Um, there are things about lifestyle here that the popes are saying we need to examine right the way through in terms of what we do. Technology, point seven, and the tilling of creation. I very briefly make the point, if you use the image of the gardener to cultivate creation. Technology is not your enemy. Technology is your friend. You just need to use technology the right way to develop creation, not damage it. And because so much of our stereotypes in this regard see industry as the enemy, we can lose sight of the fact industry, if harnessed correctly, can be the friend of the environment as well. Okay, um, we are not having a full lecture today because this is to finish at 12. Do you want a brief analysis of vegetarianism and hunting? Or yeah. <laughs> that will run us. Let's go to page eight. Um, this will be the last thing we'll do. I asked you to read in advance page nine about whether animals go to heaven. Didn't I give that to you before the break? Did I not? Okay, you'll have to read that by yourself your pet hamster is not going to heaven. But, um, and that's all, all detailed there. Okay. Uh, page, page eight, then two things we're going to consider, vegetarianism and hunting. So vegetarianism. So, and God said, behold, I give you every plant yielding seed which is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for your food. So that sometimes said, well, they were all vegetarians in the Garden of Eden. Uh, so should we therefore be vegetarians? Even if that was true, that's not our natural state after the fall. So Genesis 9 says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. That was in the covenant to Noah. In the New Testament, the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Yeah. And then quoting St. Thomas, there is no sin in using a thing for its purpose. Animals use plants and men use animals for food. Then look at the example of Jesus. Jesus, we know, ate fish. We know he ate meat because he ate the Passover lamb. He produced great catches of fish and food for his miracles, which one would imagine would have to be a bit wasteful. Do you think that you, they managed to eat all of that huge catch of fish that he repeatedly did? Do vegetarians claim to be better than Jesus? I, I put that out there as a question. Uh, and when you listen to some, they, they seem 
as if they do. Uh, that said, I say there are Christian motives for not eating meat. So penance. So on Fridays, uh, many monasteries never eat meat as an act of penance. Poverty can be a motive. Poverty in the sense of choosing simplicity of life. You want to live in solidarity with the poor, therefore you resolve you will not eat meat. Um, another motive, injustice to humans. So it's sometimes argued that if farming in poor countries takes meat food from the poor and brings it over here, then that's an injustice in our trading arrangements. You could campaign against that by resolving not to eat meat. Another motive that would be a valid Christian motive is cruelty to animals. So if the farming methods are needlessly cruel to the animals, that would be a possible reason not to eat meat. So veal in Europe is one example frequently pointed to by the British in this regard. We, or at least our media, will often focus on how veal, well not veal, what's the animal veal comes from, because it doesn't come as veal. <laughs> it comes from a calf, yeah? And um, that they get transported in uh, horrible containers um, in a way that seems needlessly cruel. If that genuinely is cruel, that would be a motive to not eat certain meats, even potentially to boycott meat until farming methods are reformed. There would be a Christian motive there that is different from flat out saying all eating of meat is wrong. I just wanted to put out there, there are ways you could have a, a Christian Catholic argument against some meats, um, but you couldn't universalize that without claiming to be better than Jesus. Okay, final thing today, hunting as sport. And I would note, I've changed my opinion on this when I was a young man, I was very against hunting, I was raised in an anti-hunting kind of mindset um, in a very urban environment. Um, <laughs> sorry, did I say that with sufficient contempt? Um, <laughs> as I've become more Catholic, I've changed my opinion on this. So what do I note here? I say the tradition, capital T. Many saints hunted animals, saints. And I note no theologian of antiquity has ever questioned the morality of hunting. So to go from that to suddenly saying hunting's wrong, there's a problem there. I then say as a sport, hunting, I say like all sports, involves skill and perseverance. Then quote a preconsidium manual saying, reasonable sport is not cruelty for its own sake, and the pain of animals may be permitted. Now then try to distinguish the, a form of hunting that would be immoral and a form of hunting that wouldn't be. So distinction between hunting as sport and hunting as cruelty. So it can either be interior, depending on the motive of the hunter. So if you went hunting with someone who was enjoying the pain they were causing to the animals, that would seem distasteful to you, yeah? So if there is something interior, that would be not hunting as sport, but hunting as cruelty. Second though, exterior. 
If the action itself is objectively cruel, regardless of the hunter's intention, and note that different forms of hunting involve different degrees of distress to the prey. Now, how do we evaluate that? Well, I say there's a danger that humans often project human-like meaning into animal facial expressions. So the bunny looks cute, the bunny looks like it's suffering, the bunny looks like he, my dog's smiling at me. A dog can't smile. Um, and we imagine animals thinking with a type of worried stress, a stress that they're just not capable of. So our final thing, um, Jake, can you read that bottom quote in small print here? So you as a human being are capable of worrying, capable of experiencing stress in a way that the bunny rabbit is stressed in another sense, but it isn't able to have fear and worry and anxiety the way a human is. Therefore, you shouldn't imagine it suffering psychically the way a human does. But that doesn't mean any suffering inflicted on it is, is morally acceptable. Okay, what have we done today? We've been trying to give a vision of why the catechism is treating of the environment in the context of property. This notion of what is the center and meaning of all of the environment, the human person. But there is both an authentic and a false way of understanding that. And this notion, if the environment is seen as property, then we can see a question of justice what we owe to others and how we use it or misuse it, um, a justice among our own generation and to the generations that will come after us.